every who down in Whoville, the tall and the small, was singing without any presence at all. He hadn't stopped Christmas from coming. It came. Somehow or other, it came just the same. And the Grinch, with his Grinch feet ice cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling, how could it be so? It came without ribbons, it came without tags, it came without packages, boxes, or bags. He puzzled and puzzled till his puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more. Last Sunday, uh, I began a short two-sermon series really addressing the conclusion the Grinch reached that there is something more to Christmas than just gifts, bright lights, trees, and cinnamon rolls from the Pioneer Woman. There's more to Christmas than that. And, and even among those of us who wear the name of Christ as disciples of Jesus, maybe we too get caught up a little bit in the material secular side of Christmas and forget the whole meaning of Christmas. And so last week I shared three words that are all related uh, to Christmas. The first word being Advent, uh, a Latin word which literally means uh, arrival or appearing, and typically it's used in the first appearing of Christ uh, with his birth, uh, which the Christmas season uh, celebrates. But after reflecting upon that word, asking the question, are you ready for the second advent of Jesus? He has promised to return, and he is coming again. And so as we reflect upon his first appearing or his initial arrival, remembering that Christ is coming again and we need to prepare for it. Just as we prepare for Christmas every year. The second word, be Bethlehem. And we know that Christ was born in Bethlehem. And so in a sense, Bethlehem is his home. But we went on to make the point that uh, Jesus really had no place to lay his head as the Son of Man. And he reminded us in his public ministry just how difficult it can be as his disciple and what it means to follow him. And he made the point that really where your treasure is is where your heart is. And where your heart is, is really where your home is. And so our, our hearts need to be with Jesus. And Jesus needs to be the center and the focus of our hearts. And so we ask the question, are you going home for Christmas? Lori and I got back from Ada last night. We spent yesterday in Ada. That's my home, literally or physically. But... Jesus should be our home. And Jesus should be the focus of our heart. And so will we go home and be with Jesus? 
And then C, the word Christmas itself should remind us that the day belongs to Christ. Christ Matt. It is His. Unless, of course, as I discovered after church last night, you're Barbara Dean and it's also her birthday. So that's okay. You know, some of us do have Christmas birthdays. But that Jesus is the reason for the season. In fact, Jesus is the reason, period. And the question we ask based on that word, will we reflect upon the reason for the season? To, to reflect more than just on what we might be receiving as a gift or even what we might be giving as a gift and not to forget Jesus. Somehow, yesterday afternoon, we, we were at Lori's family's yesterday morning, then at my family uh, yesterday afternoon, and at my family's house after all the gifts had been exchanged and we played around a dirty Santa and we had my mother's waffles, the best waffles in the world, for supper. We were talking and somehow the discussion came up about Christmas. And in, in Risa, my sister was making the point that several years ago, she could remember that, that she typically was, was hushed if she asked any religious questions about the significance of Jesus. And my mother spoke up pretty quickly and said, yeah, but we've changed about that. All right. I think I mentioned that last week. And so now my mother has a nativity scene in her, on her uh, coffee table in the living room there. But we talked about how, how, how maybe we've become a little more balanced in remembering what Christmas is all about. And I want to continue that theme uh, this morning. And I want us to move down the alphabet just a little bit and discuss three more words. And after discussing these three words, ask three more questions. Again, designed to help us remember Jesus as the reason for the season. Let's talk about the letter G. G might stand for genealogy. I really have appreciated the three lessons that Cliff Kirby uh, has presented the past three Wednesday nights in the outreach building. He focused his thoughts around the birth of Jesus in these three lessons. And in the very first lesson, Cliff commented on the significance of the genealogy of Jesus. We find two list two genealogies one that begins the gospel of Matthew and one that Luke includes in his gospel in Luke chapter 3 both lists prove that Jesus descended from the royal bloodline of King David Matthew begins with Abraham and ends with Jesus Luke begins with Jesus and traces back all the way to Adam. Both genealogies affirm that Jesus, again, can rightly lay claim to David's throne and thus fulfills prophecy. Together they confirm Jesus as a descendant of Abraham and therefore a Jew, a descendant of David and therefore of royal ancestry, and as a descendant of Adam, a human being. And that may be why Luke in his gospel seems to focus upon Jesus as the Son of Man. You know, Cliff made the point that, that one of the important 
aspects of including a genealogy is it puts the birth of Jesus in a historical context. Genealogies also signified one's position in society. And when you look at both genealogies, we might see that God is a God of individuals. God is a God who can use each individual. And God is a God of grace to each individual. And so I, I hope uh, in, in the future, whether it's during the time of Christmas or just during a time that we are reading through the Gospels, that we don't quickly read through the genealogies. But to recognize these individuals, uh, look for special things about a number of these individuals that we find in these two lists, and to remember their own importance. G is for genealogy. Let's move to the letter I. And I might stand for the word in, I-N-N. Now, in the 1984 edition of the NIV, this verse read this way. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn, I-N-N. Right? Anybody reading a translation this morning that reads that way? Raise your hands. Okay, yeah, there are several, all right. Well, I have the latest edition of the NIV, which is uh, from 2011, and it reads this way. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. All right. So this shift from in to guest room. Now, why did the translators make this shift between 1984 and in 2011? All right. Well, because of advances in word studies and uh, because of more archaeological work uh, that has been uh, revealed, scholars now believe that, that this word is better translated as a guest room. The word is used only two other times in the New Testament. Luke uses it again in Luke 22, verse 11, when Jesus tells uh, his disciples to go into the city and to find a guest room where he might eat the Passover with the disciples. The other passage is the parallel verse in Mark 14, 14. In Luke 10, uh, verse 34, in the parable of the Sermon uh, on the Mount, you might remember from that story that the Good Samaritan, as we call him, uh, call him, leaves the person who had been beaten and robbed at an inn. All right? That is a, a different word. Uh, that word, modern paraphrase, might be Motel 6. Okay? And, and so that word would be more of what we would call a, a motel. So here's what has been discovered and, and why the shift in translation, at least in the NIV, from 1984 uh, to 2011. 
Peasant homes normally consisted of only two rooms. Right? Lori and I witnessed this when we made our trip to Israel in February of 2017. Right? The family typically cooked, ate, slept, and lived in the front main room, and any animals that the family might have owned were then brought in at night and kept at a lower level right there in front of this main room. Uh, that's where the manger would be or the feeding trough for the animals. The second room behind the first room was the guest room. So Joseph and Mary would have entered the home of a relative in Bethlehem, but were offered sleeping arrangements in the lower level of the main room, most likely because the guest room was already full of guests who were perhaps older or in, in closer family uh, proximity, uh, maybe had arrived earlier, okay, for the census and had already unpacked their bags, uh, so to speak. So even though Mary was pregnant and the birth of Jesus evidently very uh, imminent, she and Joseph would have to adapt themselves to the lower level with the animals being present at night. All right? And that's why Jesus would have been then laid in the manger or the feeding trough. So... G for genealogy, I for N, and now finally, not so much a word as a phrase, but to us is given. Right? Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You know, the prophet Isaiah is, is kind of noted or, or famous for his messianic prophecies and noted for the significant names that he attaches to the coming Messiah. Uh, Emmanuel, God with us, would be uh, another uh, one of those titles. And in here, in, in this verse, in chapter 9, uh, verse uh, 16, the Fourfold title of the promised king emphasizes his identity, his deity, the, the conditions, the type of kingdom that he would bring forth and, and set up uh, among uh, God's people. But the Hebrew emphasis is not so much on what he will do or even in this case who he is as is the fact that he's given by God. That, that the promised Messiah is a gift. It's a gift given to humanity. The Messiah is a gift to creation from God himself. And, and so the idea that, that Jesus is, is a gift to us. So G, genealogy, I, N, and I guess T for this phrase, to us is given. Right. Now, three questions related uh, to these uh, three words or phrases. First of all, genealogies 
should make us think about our roots. All right? Lori is much bigger into this than, than I am. All right? And she has done a lot of work recently about some of her family roots. And there is, she has discovered there is this famous family in Ireland uh, that she is from, last name of Denny. And if you've ever been, been to Ireland, there are Denny's everywhere. And, and so I, I said, Lori, that is so cool. I, I did not know your family was responsible for all these restaurants in our country. She didn't think it was all that funny, all right? But, but she has really discovered some, some neat things about her, her heritage, okay? And so finally, she convinced me to uh, spit into one of those little vials. If they'd have had to draw blood, I'd have said no, all right? And I sent it off. I just got this back like last summer. And so based upon this... 57% of my family uh, comes from Great Britain, 39% from Ireland, 3% from Sweden, and uh, 1% from Southern Bantu peoples. Now that would be really interesting to kind of trace back. Right? Then once they arrived here, this uh, DNA thing discovered that uh, my immediate family, or my more, my more immediate family, uh, settled in northeast Texas. Well, I knew that. My grandfather, my dad's dad, Clifford Johns, was born in Tyra. You know where Tyra is? Between here and Sulphur Springs. He wound up growing, uh, growing up in Soper, Oklahoma, and then Ada. Right? And so it's, it's kind of neat, i got to admit, uh, to, to kind of know that. Right? Because... Our heritage shapes our identity and experience. And, and so maybe, maybe some of you have taken a test or you've done some research and discovered some things about your family. But here's the question this morning. Do you belong to God's family? That, that's the question. And, and as you think about the genealogies of Jesus that we find in, in Matthew uh, 1 and Luke 3, as a person of faith, that we would be included in that heritage, in that lineage of King David, of all people? Paul says this in Galatians 3. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. If physical genealogy signifies one's position in society, belonging to the genealogy of Jesus signifies one's position in the kingdom of heaven. And that, that is the role book that we want to be a part of, right? I think John calls it the book of life in the book of Revelation. 
And so the question as we think about the genealogy of Jesus is do you belong to God's family? Number two, what position does Jesus hold in your life? In spite of Mary's condition, as we noticed just a moment ago, Joseph and Mary and Jesus were relegated to the lower quarter. There was no room for them in the more comfortable guest room. And again, we don't know for what reason. It may be in a combination of reasons. But the fact is they were relegated to the lower quarter. So what position does Jesus hold in your life? Is he relegated to a lower position? Some of you might be familiar with author Brian McLaren. He says this in his book, A Generous Orthodoxy. The more one respects Jesus, the more one must be brokenhearted, embarrassed, furious, or some combination thereof when one considers what we Christians have done with Jesus. That's certainly true when it comes to calling Jesus Lord, something we Christians do a lot, often without the foggiest idea of what we mean. Has he become, I shudder to ask this, less our Lord and more our mascot? What position does Jesus hold in your life? Then finally, number three. To us, a son, a child is given. What will we do with God's gift? What will we do with the gift of Jesus? A lady by the name of Olivia Goodhill wrote a little article a few years ago titled, Unwanted Christmas Presents, Seven Things You Can Do With Them. Anybody already opened up some gifts? And has anyone received a gift? You you might not want to admit this because the person that gave you the gift might be in this room. But haven't we all been there? Right? When we maybe we've received a gift and that we really didn't want or really didn't understand or really didn't appreciate. All right. Well, here's here are the seven things that Olivia Goldhill says that you can you can do with, with these gifts. Christmas is a time for giving, but unfortunately the givers don't always have the best taste. They'll remain unnamed. Unless you're incredibly lucky or sent out a specific list of desired items before, chances are you'll have at least one gift you don't like or can't even stand the sight of. But in our materialistic society, there will always be a use for for even some of the worst presents. From the serious to the silly, here are some ways to make good use of those unwanted gifts. You can refund them. Won't mention any names, but I I know of one young man in particular that did that with a number of wedding gifts. Not going to name any names, but you take them to Walmart and you get a refund, okay? 
His initials might have been Luke Johns, but we're not, we're not going to tell his name. You can sell the items online. You can sell them online. All right? You can give them away to charity. <clears throat> Number four, and, I, and I've, been, I've been to some, some dirty Santa parties already. I've been to two family Christmases, and I heard this word used, re-gifting. Right? Okay. Maybe you can swap with someone uh, who receives something that, that maybe you would like a little better or could use a little better. You can reappropriate the gift. <laughs> or, or, number seven, you can just vent. Just, you know, just vent. I, I don't know if you vent with the person that gave you the gift or someone else. That would be your, uh, your choice. But what will you do with God's gift of Jesus? What will you do? Ask for a refund? Try to sell your faith away? Uh, Regift it somehow? So, uh, what, what are you going to do with God's gift? Again, the words of the Apostle Paul from chapter 2 in Ephesians, beginning with verse uh, 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God not by works so that no one can boast for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. What will you do with God's gift? Dear Santa, what I want for Christmas is a Lego ship that costs $100. The ship is big, I want a ship. And if you have time to put it together, because it's, it's pretty hard for me, uh, I can't put it together because I know how hard it is. Santa, I love you. Santa, thanks for the ship. I hope you can give it to me. Signed, Justin. That was a letter to Santa from 1990. I would imagine Justin got the ship, don't you? Even though it cost $100. I bet Santa delivered. And, and I think it's interesting that Justin understands it's really much bigger than he is capable of handling. And, and so he, he, he puts his trust, he puts his hope in Santa. And, and I just have a feeling Santa delivered, right? We've been there. Life is big. In, in fact, it is, it is so big, often we are overcome by it. We are overwhelmed by it. And, and often we try to put our lives together knowing, knowing we can't, but we try anyway, right? And, and, and so finally, finally we reach a point and we realize 
life does cost too much. It, it is too big. And we need someone to gift us. And, and we need someone to put our lives together. And that's what Jesus does. That's the beauty of the most wonderful gift of all. Jesus, the Son of God, sent in this, into this world as, as our Savior. And, and being a part of his family. Being, being a descendant of Abraham, the father of our faith. And giving our lives over to him. And, and just, just being an instrument that, that God is consistently working on and, and through using us to share that gift of Jesus. And, and so we're back, we're back to those questions. Are you a member of God's family? Are, are, are you a part of that family? Does your life belong to Christ? And, and, and secondly, you know, what, what are we going to do with the gift? Have we relegated Jesus to, to some lower portion of our life? He's, he's a little bit there, all right? We haven't, we haven't completely uh, put him on the shelf. But he's not first place. And that's the place that he not only deserves, it's the place he demands of us. Will you give your life to Jesus? Won't you come while we stand and sing?